you know, when you get those no's, we sometimes think they're from people with power or authority or credibility that you should be listening to. And I think what I learned is that, like, it's it's not just the people with authority who make the rules. Anyone makes the rules. You know, they're no smarter than you or I. And if we examine things in enough detail, like, we, we can challenge the status quo and create a new set of rules. You're listening to This Life Explains It All. With the creators of Vera, your guide for navigating a conscious life. We're Stefania Romeo and Catherine Griffiths. This Life Explains It All was created out of belief that our life experience is our greatest teacher. And as soul sisters and intuitives, we've spent the past decade completely obsessed with better understanding our minds and our bodies, all while running a mile a minute with busy careers as leaders in the tech startup world. On this podcast, we are bringing you the insights and lessons that have changed our lives with the thought leaders, healers, and dreamers behind them. We're discussing wellness practices, healing methods, and experiences that get us to think differently about life and live empowered. Whether you want to uplevel your health, your career, your relationship, or are going through changes to your life path, this information can help you get there and let you know that we're right here with you. We believe life isn't meant to be lived linear, and no matter where you are right now, you're right on time. Today, we're talking to Adam Jacobs. He's the co-founder of The Iconic, a company that changed the e-commerce game in Australia and is now the biggest e-com retailer in the country. Yeah, this company is awesome. I can attest to that living in Australia. You can get apparel delivered, so clothing and shoes delivered within three hours. Yeah. And now Adam has a new venture called Hatch, which is creating the future of work. In this conversation, Adam is sharing his personal and professional transformations through starting two successful companies. His work today with Hatch is focused on giving students real-world experiences in well-established companies so they can decide on a career path that's right for them in an informed way. Adam gets into the realities of starting your own business, how much you learn and grow from the process, and he shares advice on how and when to take the leap. Yeah, I first met Adam at the soda factory in Sydney, Australia, when I first moved here. The soda factory is like a bar club in Sydney. And I had just moved here, so it was about five years ago. And I was standing in line and he was in front of me with his girlfriend. And we started talking and his girlfriend is American as well. So we kind of connected on that. But I just remember he was so inviting and sociable and wanted and very curious as well. And he invited me to a housewarming they were having the following week. And I immediately said yes, because I wanted friends so badly (laughs) and they seemed like really great people. So I said yes and was really excited to go. And I went to the house party and it was really fun. And I still keep in contact with some of the people that I met there. And Adam and I have just kept in contact ever since. And I've been super impressed with everything that he's done with the iconic and starting hatch. And it's pretty, it's just really impressive. And he's a great guy. Wow. So you're just standing in line at a club and he invited you to a housewarming party. Yeah. Like we were talking, the line was really long. I wouldn't wait in a line like that now. Like that was just kind of the 
thing I did because I had just moved there and I would do anything. Okay, cool. Well, I'm excited for this conversation with Adam. And I think this is in line with some of what we're going to be sharing more of on the podcast in terms of speaking with and having conversations with people who have done interesting things in entrepreneurship or, you know, in career that we can learn from. So we choose who to have on the podcast based on people that, like I said, we really want to learn from and who inspire us. And we've been thinking a lot lately about how important it is to connect this idea of sort of being whole and caring for ourselves and wellness to applicable real life realities and settings. And one of the most important for us is, you know, our career, our life mission. So I love learning from and talking to people like Adam who are doing things that are really inspiring and that we can learn from as well. So I think it's really important to be able to apply self-care and wellness to real life. So Adam is a great example of kind of taking an idea and really taking a leap and a risk and going for it, seeing an opportunity and, and seizing it. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really applicable either in work or in life. He's a great example of that. And also just, he shares in the interview, but sharing some of his lessons and things that he's learned about himself through going for it and how much he's grown through those processes. And I think that that's really important because it can apply to anything. If you really put yourself out there and do that thing that you've always wanted to do, you're going to get a pretty big return in terms of personal growth from that. Yeah, for sure. And I think that there's a theme kind of in this conversation and in the idea that you just talked about of like overcoming and even identifying fear-based thinking or kind of why, you know, all the ways that we tell ourselves why something we want to do or want to go for won't work or can't work or all the reasons to stay comfortable or even stay small. So I love kind of talking about what's on the other side of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It just made me think of even starting, I mean, it's nothing is ever as scary as the way that you think about it in your head. Well, we're going to be having some more conversations in this theme on the idea of connecting self-care and being whole to really applying it in life. So this is actually the theme of our launch celebration coming up in San Francisco at the, toward the end of the month. And really excited for you to hear the interview that we're doing as a live interactive podcast there with another entrepreneur that really inspires us, Heidi Zach of Third Love. So more on that to come and, and look out for that one. Kat's actually coming out to the U.S. Yes. For the celebration and some other stuff that we're doing. Yes. It'll be a very short trip, but lots of, of exciting things packed in. Cannot yeah. wait. I love flights. Leave it to Catherine to come to the U.S. from Australia for how long are you coming? Four days, five Four days? Four days, yeah. But yeah, I actually enjoy the flight a lot. And people think I'm crazy, but I love the disconnection in the air. Like I can't be reached. I mean, unless it has Wi-Fi, but most of the international <laughs> ones don't. And I just get time to myself and it's very relaxing. I get that. But you, how long is the flight? It's like on, on the way here, it's like 14 hours, right? Yeah. To San Francisco, it's 14 hours, 14 to 16, depending on the- So, so you enjoy sitting on a plane for 14 hours? Yeah. I mean, I sleep for most of it too. Yeah. 
I'm so excited for you to actually be here in the flesh. I know. It's so fun to be together. I know. IRL. It makes such a difference. Okay, let's get to the episode now with Adam. So in this episode, we're talking to Adam about the difference between starting a business because you want to be an entrepreneur and starting one because there's a problem to solve. How to handle the starting a business hurdles, like people telling you you can't or that idea won't work. What he's learned about himself through the hyper growth of the iconic and now Hatch. When it's time to take a step back and really evaluate what's important. Let's get into it. All right. All right. Welcome, Adam. Thank you. Good to be here. Yeah, we're really excited to have you on the podcast and your experience and your background is really interesting starting the iconic and hatch. So we really wanted to dig into that and hear more about how you started those to get started, can you just share a little bit about your background? Sure, sure. So my name's Adam. I'm Australian, born in Sydney. Originally studied philosophy at university and did that for like five years. Had a really grand time both in Sydney and Boston, getting getting deep into all sorts of things like phenomenology and existentialism and whatnot. Went into strategy consulting after that because what do you do with a philosophy degree? You come up with strategies to people's problems, I suppose. (laughs) Love that. And then in 2011, I was working in Denmark with a a consulting firm I was was in, was sort of observing just how much more advanced e-commerce was in Europe compared to Australia Mm -hmm. and thought, you know what, Australia is well overdue for a really great online store. Mm -hmm. Um, Happened to team up with some German investors who had the same thesis, moved back to Australia on, I wouldn't say on a whim, but it definitely wasn't in my plan to to drop my consulting career and start a business, but did it, moved back to Australia and started what became the Iconic, um, which is now the largest online fashion retailer in Australia. Yeah, built, built that for about seven or eight years to a thousand people and yeah, at, at scale uh, and and then thought, okay, what an, what an amazing experience. What can I do with, with all those skills that's a little closer to my own sense of purpose. Not that fashion's not, but I, I guess I wanted to try and, and do something that was more socially driven, social impact driven, mm-hmm. um, and, uh, and started uh, my new adventure called Hatch, which is a young talent platform. And the goal there is to help young people um, find their way to meaningful part-time work while they're studying uh, in professional fields so that they can try out different um, types of work and figure out what's right for them. Um, and that's where I'm at now. We're about two years into it. And we're coming out of our beta period and, and about to move into a public launch. Awesome. It's weird to yeah. say your life in yeah. like, I don't know, two yeah. minutes. Yeah. <laughs> like I missed, I, I dropped out a lot of stuff that's relevant, but, yeah. but you know, maybe, maybe come up just after. for the purpose of editing. What were you like as a child? Were you really entrepreneurial or did it kind of happen later on? I think the first thing I would say is like, I really don't identify as an entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. Even though I clearly am, like whenever you go through the airport and you're asked to write down your your profession on the customs slip, I just like that moment is so like terrifying for me. Like I freeze and I look at it and I'm like, I don't want to write entrepreneur. What should I write? That's so different from what we see out here in the Bay Area and really in the US where more and more people are identifying themselves as an entrepreneur. 
Maybe that's part of it, is that I think that there's a certain allure or prestige that's been associated to the idea of being an entrepreneur that means it's become like an end in itself. And I don't see it as an end in itself. Um, I think you start a business to solve a problem and the problem you're solving is much more important that you're all of a sudden being now defined as an entrepreneur. And I think where I see a lot of young entrepreneurs um, going going off track is often where they're more interested in just being an entrepreneur right. than, than in the actual problem they're solving. And so they don't have yeah. the tenacity or the understanding of it to actually like make it successful. Yeah. How much of it for you in starting the Iconic and Hatch was about wanting to create and build something on your own versus the idea of each company itself? So I think it's one on either side. So the Iconic, the first business was really right time, right place, and about taking the plunge into building something myself. When I was in Denmark and the opportunity came up to move back to Australia and start a fashion e-commerce business, I'd just been accepted into the MBA programs um, at Harvard and Columbia. And I was like pumped to do that. I was like, I love studying. I was really excited to go to one of those schools. As an Australian, it's like, that's actually a cool cultural experience. It might not seem that way to an American, but it is to an Australian. And, you know, I really had no intention of starting a business whatsoever. And it wasn't the right time in my life. Yeah. Like I'd, I'd just moved to Europe six months before. I, I told my family and friends I wasn't coming back for probably a decade and I had no plans to start a business. Yeah. But when this opportunity came along and I thought about it deeply, I thought to myself, this can work. You know, yeah. like the Australian market is overdue for an e-commerce revolution. Yeah. These investors I'm talking to, they, they have the experience to support me to pull it off. Mm. I'm, I'm at a stage in my career where I feel like I have the energy and the drive to like push through the barriers I'm inevitably going to come up against. And so I think in the end, my conclusion was it's not the right time for this kind of opportunity, but it is the, the right opportunity. You know, sometimes we say that the next opportunity is always going to come along. And I'm not sure that's true. Like, I think that when one's unique, you should just grab it and go with it. Yeah, um, I agree with that. And that and that's the first business. It was like, okay, I can build something. Let's like, let's go for it. Whereas to answer your second question, Stefania, it was, it, was, um, it was much more about a sense of purpose that led me to founding Hatch, like wanting to help people figure out what's right for them when it comes to work. And I think it's a really hard question to solve. I find that question fascinating. It's really close to our sense of identity. It's really close to our sense of contribution in the world. It's very close to our mental well-being and general happiness in life. And that's something that I wanted to make a contribution to. Yeah, I love that. And I love the idea of Hatch because, well, first of all, it's something that I wish we had when we were deciding on careers because you really don't know what you really love at that age. Like yeah. when you're in university and college and trying to figure it out, how have you seen that with Hatch? How have you seen that change in students choosing their careers? Yeah, I mean, we're definitely seeing um, different expectations from the next generation as they're coming into the workforce. Mm -hmm. And you know, to, to paint the extreme version of that, just to really highlight it, in the 20th century, you know, in, in the 80s and the 90s, careers were very vocational. You, you studied something vocational at university, let's call it accounting, and then you were an accountant for 40 years and probably 20 of those yeah. 40 years you were in the one company. Yeah. And work just doesn't look like that anymore, you know, and, and, we, know, and we know that. The expectations of the next generation is that, they won't be within one job family. They won't be within one company. Yeah. They're going to move across lots of different types of work. They're going to learn new skills through their career. 
And I think associated to that is there's an expectation of greater social mobility. Just because they were born into a particular family that led to a particular education um, and community doesn't mean that's where they have to stay. You know, they, they can follow their passion. And so, like, to match those expectations, I think what's required is a better ability for experiential learning. Because mm-hmm. if you're confronted as a young person with a world of endless options of, like, I could do anything, um, the natural next question is, well, what is it that I should do? And it's hard to answer those questions without actually having real-world, direct-world experiences um, that you can try out, like, for yourself. I'm curious, are you seeing, you know, we were talking about kind of this shift in interest to be an entrepreneur, like sort of as a career, as an end state. Are you seeing that in in what students are interested and are you kind of building that into the experience as well? So I think the image of success has changed this past decade to before, you know, whereas maybe around the turn of the century, the image of success was investment banker, consultant, doctor. Yeah. The image of success that people look up to in terms of role modeling these days is definitely founder, entrepreneur, tech family. So, you know, great engineer, great designer, great product manager. And I also think the image of success has shifted more towards purpose-led paths. Um, You know, joining a fantastic foundation like the Gates Foundation is now more prestigious than working for Goldman Sachs, I would say. Right. I think that's true. Another thing I think is that it's only an image and it doesn't mean it's right for a particular individual. So we we don't really want to encourage the next generation to become an entrepreneur only because that's the image they hold. We like we want them to find out for themselves. Um, so really what we're trying to do is construct experiences where they can have a taste of those different things. They can have a taste of what it means to work in tech, of what it means to, I don't know, work in a startup, maybe not to be a founder themselves, but to work with a founder and be exposed to that um, environment. Mm-hmm. Um, and then all the other ones to try like marketing, to try investment banking, to try nonprofits and to learn for themselves, like what's a good fit for them rather than simply conforming to like social pressures and anxieties. Yeah, I think that's so, it's just so smart too, because like I said earlier, you just don't get that exposure any other way than being exposed to it in a real world environment. Yeah, and definitely what we see from students that, I mean, in our in our beta period, we've been placing about 350 students so far into usually about six-month part-time uh, jobs in a range of companies for them to gain real-world experience. And, and what we see from them is this incredible learning curve during those placements about their strengths, about their values, about like, you know, what makes them feel alive, what type of environment. Mm-hmm. And it's a learning curve that um, I think usually occurs if you, you know, if, if you spend your college or university years working in bars and cafes and retail stores. Mm. Usually that learning curve only happens after graduation. Mm-hmm. You start your first full-time job and like fingers crossed you're going to like it. And three years later, a lot of people don't like it and it's really hard to change. Mm-hmm. So, you know, what we're seeing is it is we're able to, to shift the learning curve forward and accelerate their understanding of what's right for them so that they're making a smarter choice upon graduation. And what were some of the barriers, either with Hatch or the Iconic, that you mentioned that earlier? What were some of those barriers that you faced? I think to give you an example from the Iconic, what, you know, our our challenge with the Iconic was in 2011, 2012, which is when we started the business. 
we needed to shift the paradigm in Australia over why you shop online. And the old paradigm was you shop online because it's cheap. It's like bargain basement. It's last year's stock and it's half price, which is great, but it's going to take forever to get to you. Delivery is really slow. Customer service sucks. And you probably get the wrong thing in the mail half the time, but hey, at least it's really cheap. Like that was the proposition before we entered the market. Yeah. And we wanted to shift the status quo to, no, 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 you shop online, not because it's last year's stock and it's really cheap, but because it's a much better service experience. It's Mm going to be fast delivery. It's going to be free returns. Mm -hmm. It's going to be easier access to all the different brands you want to shop. And you can do it at lunchtime on your phone without having to go to like the shops on the weekend. Yeah. And to create that paradigm shift, we really focused on speed of delivery. The status quo when we entered the market was literally about one month delivery timeframes when you bought something online. And we we wanted it to be way faster. And we wanted to do that as a way to show Australians, hey, like online shopping has changed. You know, the first, the first big note I got that I can remember was from a major logistics partner. When we said to them, look, instead of I think at the time they were offering one week delivery. Instead of one week delivery, we want to do overnight around the whole country. And I I remember being in a room of industry veterans from the supply chain logistics field who, you know, been working in it in Australia for decades, who looked at me and said, like, who do you think you are? Like, you just don't understand logistics. Like, you're a kid. Like, I think I was 28, 29 at the time. And they're like, you're nothing but a kid trying to tell us that we don't know our industry, like we do, like you're a novice, get out of here. And I remember having to say to them, okay, I don't, I don't understand why one day delivery is impossible, explain it to me. And they didn't have a good explanation apart from saying it's just not possible and it's just yeah. not possible isn't a real answer to me. Yeah. And so I challenged them and said, well, like let's get down in the detail and spend a couple of weeks examining your supply chain in, in each step and seeing if it is possible. And of course, lo and behold, there was enormous room for optimization in the supply chain. And we were able to achieve overnight delivery. And they were super surprised about it because they were so staunch with their no. They were like, you're dreaming. You don't don't know what you're talking about. And in reality, they're just not persisted to the level of detail required to innovate. And that was a big lesson for me that, um, you know, when you get those no's, we sometimes think they're from people with power or authority or credibility that you should be listening to. And I think what I learned is that like, th- it's, it's not just the people with authority who make the rules. Anyone makes the rule. They're no smarter than you or I. And if we examine things in enough detail, like we, we can challenge the status quo and create a new set of rules. Yeah. And I think that was a big turning point for me as a entrepreneur in inverted commas. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it's like that fear of change that I like the logistic company was probably like, well, we can't change it. This is how we've always done yeah. it. And I think, you know, even with well-established companies, that mentality is in there too. Like, oh, well, we can't, this is how we've always done it. So yeah. I think that it's such a good example. I love what you said about coming to the realization that just because someone may have a more senior title or is more experienced, they're not necessarily better equipped to make the rules or make the decisions. And I think that that is very liberating when you learn that. It's something like I kind of learned as I came out here and was exposed to so many different founders and early stage companies and then like, you know, bigger startups as well and seeing like, okay, these are just people with ideas and hustle and are executing and anyone can do it. I'm wondering like for you in that realization, did it happen over time or was there something or like sort of a 
couple of things that you can remember in terms of events that turned that switch for you and making that realization? Yeah, I, I think to catch a question about like, what, what was I like as a child? Like I've always been a really curious person um, and I understand, um, I, I enjoy understanding problems and getting under the hood of them just, I don't know, just because it makes me tick. Um, it's just, mm-hmm. I just find it fun. And so like that led me to philosophy and like I was sort of mentioning philosophy in maybe a curt way before, but I think, I think it teaches you foundational thinking. Like I think it teaches you that when you're presented with what's seemingly a complex scenario, you can break it down to its constituent pieces and you can understand how to re- reshape it and put it back together in a different way. Mm-hmm. And so when presented with a complex logistic scenario in that example we just talked about, instead of being freaked out and being like, oh my God, well, they're saying it's impossible, so I'm just going to listen to them. Like I, I applied critical thinking and I was like, well, like let's actually think about this. Like let's break it down and let's, and let's mm-hmm. get down to the bottom of it and see what we find down there. Um, yeah. I think that moment, that particular example was really on in the Iconics journey and I think that was a catalyzing moment for me because I realized that, that it, wasn't, it wasn't just a failed attempt on my behalf to try and change a reality that was unchangeable. I, I realized that, no, actually I could change the rules. And after that, it gave me a lot of confidence to keep doing it. Do you find that you've taken that kind of way of thinking and and that kind of learning in your life to to other parts of your life as well and sort of the way that you live overall and how, if so? Yeah, I was actually hoping you would ask that because I think there's a really interesting parallel between that lesson from a leadership or a, I don't know, an entrepreneurial perspective of you can challenge rules. You don't have to follow others. And there's an interesting parallel to our personal lives in we don't have to follow others. And, you know, and I think like today in 2020, with all of the information and the social media and the faux celebration of achievements that occurs around us on a daily basis, (laughs) like more than ever, we are taught to model our lives on the influence of others' success. Um, And I think it is such a trap like such a trap, you know, I think that, and, and mm. I'm victim to it. Don't get me wrong. Like everybody's victim to it. You know, the fact that you read an article about what some other company or some other founder is doing and you're like, oh God, I'm not reading three books a week. Like what am I doing wrong? Yeah. Like, you got to get that blinkers down. There's so much I'm yeah. not good enough yeah. because look at all these amazing things yeah. people are doing. Yeah. Um, and there's yeah. just, and like that line of thought, never leads to a good place. Like there's no happy ending no. to that. No. Um, and the only happy ending is to look inwards, not outwards, and to think about your own constitution mm. as a person and, and what matters for you and to be more focused on that than, than how you compare to others. The problem mm-hmm. is, is that as humans, we are inherently social creatures and it's so hard for us to not compare ourselves to others. It's like a daily discipline you have to apply yourself to the way I do this is through therapy, to be honest, like on a weekly basis, Mm -hmm. I have one therapy session Mm -hmm. and I really reflect on, because I think most founders have some fairly unhealthy reason why they're so driven. Um, And for me, Mm -hmm. it's kind of like a perfectionistic thing. Like I want to fix everything. Mm -hmm. I want to fix the world. I kind of need to let go of that um, impulse. And the therapy helps me to understand where it comes from and how I can become more comfortable with not needing to fix everything. And yeah, and and it's played a really big and important role in my life. 
Yeah. And do you have practices that you do to help you look inward? Like, do you not look at social media from certain times a day or do you have any advice on that? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I don't think there's anything I've done in particular that's like, I don't know, like I would, I would say, here's my three point plan to being less focused on FOMO. Um, Like little things help, like playing with your notification settings, like definitely help. I know it's like such an easy thing, but I, you know, I changed my notification settings on like Slack and LinkedIn and to be honest, Facebook, I'm not really on much anymore anyway. And just not having that, that constant ping and therefore not waiting for that constant ping, definitely email as well makes a really big difference. The other thing I've tried to do recently is to be a little more proactive in like the parts of my life that I derive substantial meaning from as opposed to like surface level meaning meaning from and try and um, like plan more of my time around those things. So like a really, a really simple example is, you know, this early this year, I thought deeply about who are the people in my life that I just value the most and how do I want to be a really good friend to them this year? You know, what, like, what's the way, what is the role I want to play in their life this year? And it led to some cool stuff, like planning trips. And I don't know, like with one of my friends, we're going to do a stand-up comedy course together. And just like, rather than reacting to the micro influences of life every day, saying, no, I'm going to take control of my time and spend it on the stuff that like gives me a real sense of satisfaction. I think it's so important because they say like the five people that you hang around the most will become who you are because right. you're we are social creatures like you said before and that's just what will inherently happen so like taking a step back and thinking okay are these the people that I value in my life and how do I spend more time with them and I love that how do you apply that to being like I guess balancing everything your relationships starting or having your own successful business how what are your tactics I guess to balance that and keep everything flowing um, I find it really hard. <laughs> you know, I, d- I don't think I'm doing a great job at it. Um, I definitely find it really hard. I think um, some things that have helped have been, um, so the, the first thing, again, it sounds quite small, but it's been quite impactful for me, is prioritizing health and exercise, mm-hmm. exercise in particular. Yeah. If I think back to like 2013 and 14, which was the real hyper growth period of the iconic, mm-hmm. you know, we went from... 200 staff to 500 staff. You know, we went from a fast growing company to the market leader. You know, we were acquiring millions of customers. It it was just like this super, super intense period. And for me, as one of the founders, it was a period of just fighting a lot of fires every day. Mm -hmm. You know, retail companies have a lot of moving pieces. You've got lots of stock, your supply chain's complicated, you've got lots of customers, they've got different questions and needs. You've got um, daily sales targets you're trying to hit. You've got brands you're managing. You know, like re- retail is is not a set and forget business model. It's like a it's like a daily activity, and it was really taking its toll on me. You know, because trying to manage a business like that through hyper growth took every ounce of my focus yeah. and energy, and I didn't hesitate in giving it. You know, I just I didn't even think twice about working whatever it was, like 15, 16-hour days about um, spending all of my time with my team and trying to, like, help them out. And I, and I really, like, I really lost touch of myself in that year. And, and I remember there were two moments where um, it hit me hard. And those moments, like, there were subtle moments, but they were, really, they were really impactful moments for me. 
One was a very close friend's birthday party. It was like a Saturday night at a pub and I was there, but I was not there. Like people were talking to me and I was like glazed. I was thinking about all the things on my to-do list. I was thinking about all the fires I had to fight. And someone just looked at me and they were like, are you even listening to me? Mm. And like my honest answer was like, I'm not. And I love these people like much more than they were more important to me than whatever was on my to-do list. The second moment of realization was again, quite, quite subtle, but around that time, it was summertime and I was walking home after work and it was like sunset and I lived near the beach and the path to my house was lined with these really beautiful flowers and trees. And as I was walking down the path, they were emitting this like gorgeous summer scent. I think they were maybe were like jasmine. Um, and off to my right was this like postcard worthy golden sunset over like, you know, over the cliffs in the ocean. And I just didn't, it, it didn't even register, like not even an ounce of a register. I, I normally would stop and be like, what a great moment and then yeah. continue. Yeah. And I just, just was something. like all, all up in my 800 email backlog and whatever was in my mind or on my phone. Yeah. And I walked, the, I got to the end of the path and I looked back and I was like, hang on a second. Like, that's not me. And it was exercise that pulled me out of that place. Like that was like, I was really, um, I don't know, I felt like I was really lost into burnout. And I just started, I actually talked to my dad and he was all like, hey, just start prioritizing in your schedule, something for yourself. And so I started going to boot camp three times a week, which is, I don't, I don't know if you guys know boot camp is like a intense yeah. one hour exercise session. Like a hit. Yeah, I do. Ba- yeah, Barry's boot camp. Have you done that one? No, I haven't. Oh, yeah, it's intense. Yeah. But I know it's big in the US. Yeah. Yeah. It's here too now. It's a really yeah. simple thing. Yeah. But, um, but I, like I loved it. And like do, doing it like two, three times a week, all of a sudden, like showed me that I could prioritize some of my own needs. And that gradually pulled me back out of, mm. of that slump. And that was actually like a really important thing for me. Yeah. It's interesting how the like different moments like that will really stick to you. And they're, they're there, I'm sure, for a reason to kind of put like get your attention like okay you have to do something or focus on yourself so that way you can give to your business and give to your relationships yeah there's this sort of school of thought I heard someone say recently which was you know every person that speaks to you or says communicate with take that each piece as that's sort of like all the universe talking to you. And it kind of depends like what end of the spectrum you are in terms of your belief and kind of signs of the universe and things like that. But I thought of that when you said that this person asked you, like, are you even listening to me? And you said, no, you know, I feel like that's like a pretty big moment. I'm curious going back to about everything that you've learned, both from your own experience and the work you're doing on the career guidance side, from what you see and where you stand, what do you think are the biggest mistakes or kind of the biggest mistake that you're seeing people make who want to have happy, fulfilling careers, but maybe, you know, aren't doing the things that they need to do to get there? I think in my experience, I see two classic mistakes. The first classic mistake is trying to solve it in an armchair. And you see, you see this a bunch. It's like, Ooh, what would be, what would be my sense of purpose? You know, what, like, what's my passion? Let me really think it through and do uh, mind maps and decision trees and I don't know, brainstorms. 
Um, and you just can't solve it like that. You know, you, if you want to figure yeah. out where happiness might come from in work for you, you're not going to figure it out through theorizing in a chair. And I think people do that because th- I think the reason why they do it is, is they are um, uncomfortable in making a change before they feel like they have an answer. And so they're in a job that maybe they like, maybe they don't like, and they're like, well, I'm going to stay in it until I know what I want to do next. But like, they'll never answer that question because you can't figure it out in an armchair. You actually have to make a change to start figuring it out. Um, that's, that's the first yeah. classic mistake I see. The second classic mistake I see, which like I feel is really prevalent in at least my generation. Like I was born in the 80s. Like I guess I'm, I don't know, I'm Gen Y. I'm like early Gen Y, I think is um, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to spend 10 to 20 years working myself up the career ladder, making a bucket load of money and career capital, and then I'm going to pivot, and I'm going to pivot towards something that's, like, socially driven, and I'm going to spend all that money and career capital on, I don't know, a cause that I really care about, and I'm going to start a foundation or I'm going to, you know, work for a charity because I'll be so wealthy that I can do that with my life. I, you know, I, I've heard that a lot. And um, I think that just never, ever, ever plays out. Like you get, you get stuck into a lane of life. You know, let's say you've decided to go down the path of, I'm going to pick on an industry here, investment banking. Because a lot of bright people are attracted to investment banking, thinking they're going to earn a bucket load of money and then they're going to do something good with themselves later on. What happens 10 years later is you're so immersed in the world of investment banking you know, all of the micro successes around you of the next promotion, the next bonus, the next deal, how you compare against your peers, like how do, how do, you, how do you win in your world? It's just, it sucks you in. Like it completely sucks you in and you lose sight of that idealistic dream that you once had earlier on in your life. I think the thing I see that's really successful is diverse experiences, like diverse, direct real world experiences. I'm not sure what I was going to bring me happiness. So I'm going to just start doing a whole bunch of stuff and I'm going to play in the world and I'm going to see what happens and I'm going to learn from that. I like that a lot. And I think that that then also just makes you a more whole person for whatever you do decide to do. I remember a while back, I heard like an advice, a piece of advice given to actors from Angelina Jolie, but it really stuck out to me. And she said, because uh, it was like an inside the actor studio interview and an aspiring actor said, what is your advice for really perfecting your craft and being great in this business? And she said, don't think about that. Just have as many diverse life experiences as you possibly can, because then you're bringing all of that experience and context to whatever path in in this industry. But I think it applies to a lot of others too that that you do. Completely agree. It reminds me of um, like whenever young, so like I interact with a lot of uh, university students through Hatch and I'll often get the question from them of what's like the best business book you can recommend that I read? And my answer is always the same, which is like, are you kidding? Go read fiction. Like go go exercise your imagination. Like there is no business book that's going to solve your your career success problem like just go be yourself and like imagine things and see where it leads you I love that what is one thing and I'm sure there are many that you've really learned about yourself through like what's that one thing that you kind of just this is me oh man depends how honest you want me to be with you you know (laughs) (laughs) fully honest you know there's 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 a few because um particularly through the journey of building the iconic, you know, I went from a 28 year old who had managed maybe 10 people max 
And within three years, I was a 31-year-old who was managing 500 people. When you go through a growth curve like that, I feel like there is no place for you to hide your personality and your traits, like both the positive and the negative characteristics of you, like are put to the fire and come out. And you really have to understand yourself. And so I, I definitely went on a journey of, through mostly executive coaching, like understanding who I was as a person that was manifesting into who I was as a leader and trying to diagnose that in, I don't know, in some part come to terms with it, in other parts develop it. So something that stands out would be that, I, like I believe we, our personalities have dichotomies and often what we would characterize as a strength and what we would characterize as a weakness are just two traits that come from the exact same need, like core psychological need that we're trying to fulfill. And an example of how that plays out for me is I like one of my core needs, um, and maybe, a, maybe it's not so much a need, but at least traits, personality traits, is I'm a very optimistic person who wants to believe the best of others. Like I really enjoy understanding people, understanding what motivates them, trying to see the good in them and wanting to support that good. And there is, there is an upside and a downside to that when it comes to leadership. The upside is that that optimism and belief means that I can galvanize teams around goals that unify them. And I can encourage them to drive through hurdles and challenges that otherwise they wouldn't have been able to to burst through, mostly because they're now inspired with a sense of both optimism, but also someone believes in me. And that's powerful. Like when it comes to being a founder of a business that's trying to do something different, that's a very powerful trait to have. The downside is I do not fire people fast enough. And that's a really big problem, particularly when you're running an organization of a thousand people, because I believe in them. And like, and yes, I see the problem. And yes, I see where this might not be a fit, but sure, we can figure it out. And the reality is, is that like really often, if someone's not a fit for their role, and it's not always a performance reason, it's often a fit reason, you're not going to resolve it. And the longer you try and resolve it, the longer it's causing damage to the team around them and the longer it's just delaying their move to the next thing they're going to go to. And I've made so many mistakes in trying to make it work with people who didn't fit for their role for too long. That led to, you know, a six-month, 12-month delay in a team's progress of whatever the goal was that they were working towards. So I think, yeah, I think like trying to figure out how I um, reconcile and integrate the strength of the optimism with the risk of unrealistic optimism is, is a balance I'm constantly trying to, trying to like make sense of. Usually if it's not a fit, you know, it's not a fit for them either. Yeah. I always think about that with, with hiring and firing. Yeah. Yeah. And everyone, like all parties are, want it to work out. And it kind of goes back to what you were saying earlier. It's like you choose a career and it's like, well, this has to be it because you didn't have a lot of exposure before. And then you're in this job and you want it to work, but totally. if it doesn't, it doesn't. Totally. And the majority of firing conversations I've had have ended with relief that it's gone much better than I expected mm-hmm. because you're right, Stefania, like they also were feeling it wasn't a fit. Now it's like out in the open and they can move on to the next Absolutely. Thing. Yeah. On the, for those that are in a nine to five in sort of like a regular job now and have an idea and want to 
really seriously think about getting something started, what would you say would be the first step that you would advise that they do in taking that leap or getting ready to take it? So the the broad arc of the like let me let me give you like sort of the big picture and then I'll talk about the first tactical step. The the broad arc of like what you really want to do is to start doing it low risk to see if it goes somewhere. What I wouldn't suggest is quit your job and like putting all of your eggs in this one basket. Not because I'm I'm averse to uh, taking a leap of faith. I mean I've done that twice, but mostly because you just don't need to. Like I think today with the tools available to us, it's just not an intelligent way to go about it. Like it it is easier to start testing your idea to know what works and iterating it before you then decide what basket you're going to put some eggs in. So I would say, okay, so like just start, start testing, testing, just start doing things light to get feedback. The very first thing I would do, like if all you have is an idea and it's like, does this idea have legs? The very first thing I would do is go and tell that idea to 10 people who like love you and want to support your success. And then a week later, I would check in with them and I would ask them, each of them, each of these 10 people, how many people have you told this idea to? And like, you don't want to, like at the start, you don't want to, when you share the idea with them, you can't tell them that you're going to ask them that question afterwards, right? So at the end of the week, you say, how many people did you tell that idea to? Now, if... The answer is less than, let's say, five. If the, most, if the people in the world who most love you and want you to succeed haven't told more than five people each about this idea, it's not a good idea. Stop it. Don't put any more time into it. Like that is the, the absolute first thing I would do. If the answer is like, oh, my God, I told everybody I came across in the last week because it's been on my mind, you've got something. Like start working yeah. on it. Love that. I haven't heard that. Like that a lot. Cool. Well, I know that we're getting close to time. We have, we do have one question that we ask all of our guests and it's what life experience have you had has, would you say has been your greatest teacher? Mm. Mm. It's such a big question. What what have been some answers that you've gotten so far? (laughs) Just out of, for my curiosity. It's been sort of, I think that one theme and, and not to say, not to lead you at all, but one big theme that we've heard is that the the hardest times, the, the lowest times where people, you know, one guest said, you know, when she was having a really hard time and felt like she couldn't see, you know, the other side of it and, and figuring out how to get out was sort of her biggest teacher. But the theme has sort of been like the hardest times. That's what we've been hearing. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Well, now I'm going to stay away from the hardest times. <laughs> you've, you've reverse influenced me. Um, yeah, I think this, so I guess the, the one that comes to mind is a 12 month period where I um, was pretty young. I was uh, towards the end of my university degree, but because I did a five year degree, I was like 23, I guess. And I spent 12 months abroad and I spent two semesters at Boston University and I spent maybe three months backpacking South America and three months backpacking Europe. And it was a really formative year. And, uh, you know, reflecting on why it was so formative. So at Hatch, we talk about this spectrum where you, where you have defensive behavior on one end and discovery behavior on the other end. And it's hopefully something we can all relate to. When, when we're talking to someone, let's say we're in a meeting, like meetings are like 
hot pots of shitty social behavior, right? So let's say we're at like a, we're at like a, we're a meeting at work and someone says something that like challenges our point of view. Often we'll spring into defensive behavior. Like we'll, we'll like our mind will become closed. We're not really listening to what they're saying anymore. We're, we're just trying to get our point of view across. And like, n- like no development is happening at that point. Like the conversation's not moving forward. It's just yeah. becoming a bit of like a shit fight. Discovery behavior is when we're really open-minded. And we're open-minded to being challenged, to our beliefs being challenged, to forming new ones, to just learning and like seeing where it goes. Those 12 months of, of traveling and living abroad was like 12 months of pure discovery. Like I think, I don't think I had a defensive moment the whole time. And particularly the backpacking in South America. And there were some really formative moments where it helped me understand like my values and who I was and what I wanted to stand for. And let me just tell you like one one moment, and like I hope this doesn't sound like a like a, a blight on Americans. So please tell me if this is offensive to you guys. <laughs> but I'm apolog- where where are you? Okay, okay, I'm apologizing in advance. So um, so I'm doing I'm doing a trek into uh, in uh, into Machu Picchu. It wasn't the Inca Trail, but it was like another one um, that lands in five day trek that lands in uh, Machu Picchu, the Salkantai trek. And I'm backpacking with a friend from Seattle and we're both backpacking for like three months and we're having the most amazing time. And on our trek were three, three guys who were studying medicine in New York. And they said to us, I think, I think, yeah, they said to us, how long are you guys traveling for? And we're like, oh, like three months. And we're like, how long are you traveling for? And they were like, oh, like seven days. You know, one day to fly in, five days for the trek, one day to fly out. And they, and they were kind of looking at me and my friend with bewilderment. And they said, how could you like take so much time out of your life? Like, how can you afford to take so much time out of your life? Like, we, like we, need, to, we need to be like working on our progress to whatever the most fancy doctor in New York at every moment as fast as we can. And like my response back was, this is your life. You know, like this isn't time out. Like this is, this, this is it. And yeah, and and, that, and I think in just being forced into that that response, I, I realized something that I stood for, which was like not being on the rat race, like not being on the ladder, not just responding to the pressures that are laid upon you, but really thinking for yourself and living with a sense of authenticity. And that's something that sort of only developed further as I've sort of, yeah, like gone through my career since then. Yeah. I love that. And I mean, being an American and moving here actually has, I, I completely resonate with that. And that's something that I've been able to pick up from living here. Like people, I was, I remember being so surprised that people would take one month off at a time or th- even three weeks. I was just like, oh my gosh, I can't believe that. But now I understand. I mean, it takes that amount of time to really adjust to a place and, and to disconnect from your life or, you know, disconnect from the, the work. So I think that's a great example. Plus, what are you going to remember when you're like retired and, you know, old age, you're going to remember all those random Tuesdays and whatever was in your inbox and your agenda that day, or are you going to remember those moments that you spent discovering and traveling and being with loved ones? And I mean, it's, I'm framing it to be a leading question, but I think it is, I think it is like a no, like a no brainer question. Yeah. Amazing. Well, how can people, what is the best way to 
the best way to get in contact with you um, if people want to learn more? Yeah, probably LinkedIn. Yeah. I'm, uh, you'll find me on LinkedIn and uh, I'm quite responsive there. So, you know, very, very happy to be reached there. Cool. Little yeah, we'll share the links too. <laughs> If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review or share it with a friend and hit subscribe so you never miss a show.